this is, for me, the last shot at two things for you this morning. The last shot at uh, a 40 for 40 talk, we'll talk about that in a second, and my last Sunday to talk about driving a stick in the ground, making a commitment to follow Jesus. Uh, December, or excuse me, June is commitment month here at Mendham. We've been doing this for years now. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Some of you guys uh, are new here. Many of you are new here. The church has grown a lot over the last few years. And so maybe you've been coming for weeks or months and you've been enjoying church. You like the coffee. It's free, right? Um, You like children's ministry. Your kids love coming down the slide. You love the band. The music's great, right? I mean, how good's the band? Um, It's like a free concert every Sunday. It's actually not free, but that's a talk on tithing for another day. Um, Your kids love youth group, which is going to be tonight, and parents, when you pick them up, bring something to cover your seats. Um, And some of you, look, I understand it's not the majority of you, but some of you, a couple, enjoy the preaching. (laughs) There's the one. (laughs) And... And so lots of, lots of you all have been, um, there goes my southern thing, uh, come in most weeks. And I know, look, I get it. There's a lot of other things you could do on Sunday. You could sleep in. You could watch Meet the Press. I used to do that on Sundays. You could read the Sunday paper. Do they still have a Sunday paper? I don't even know if they still have a Sunday paper. Um, you could be going to your kids' sporting events. I know that Sundays are not kept holy from those anymore. I know there's a lot of other things you can do, but most of you are here because when you get here, there's something different about what, what, what is happening in, in, in these four walls. Um, there was a guy at lunch with the pastor a few weeks ago. We said, uh, we, we share how we wound up at the church, and he goes, yeah, he goes, uh, my wife started coming here, so I came here, and now she says, where do you want to go to church, or do you want to go to church with me? And he goes, are you going to that happy place? I like that happy place. I thought was cool. That's a, a good place. And so maybe when you're coming here, you've sensed something different. You feel the presence of God. You hear him maybe in ways you haven't before. You sense him in ways you haven't before. And, and so you've been coming. And you've been learning about God and hearing, hearing new facets uh, about him. But you've just been coming. You haven't, you haven't driven a stake down. You haven't, you haven't made a commitment, you've been playing it safe, kind of sitting by the pool, you know, legs are kind of hanging in, treading the water a little with your feet, but I mean, you know, getting in the pool, I understand commitments in our culture are not big today, we like to keep our options open, and so to make a public profession of faith, of crossing the line from being a fan of Jesus to actually saying, no, I think I've actually come to be a follower of his. I understand that that's a big step. It should be a big step. And that's what baptism represents. It's, it's a dividing line in some sense. It, it's a crossing over point. It's when we, we decide that Jesus was not just a great moral leader or a profound teacher that was ahead of a time, But that he is, I have decided that he is, well, who he said he is. That he is the Savior of the world. And he's mine too. That he is the way and the truth and the life. And that nobody actually does come to the Father except through him. See, baptism isn't going to save anybody. It's belief and faith in Jesus that does. But baptism is, is, well, the way we say it around here, it's an outward profession of an inward truth. 
In baptism, what we're doing is we're publicly displaying a choice we've made to give up our old lives as we ceremonially join Jesus in his death, going into the water and rising to new life as we come out. A new life that begins for us now and and goes on forever. And so today's my final talk where I'm going to ask you to consider, especially if you've been coming around for the last weeks, months, or years, or maybe if you've wandered, strayed from Christ and it's time to come home, We're going to conclude our 40 for 40 series today, and if you've been with us over the last bunch of months, we've been studying 40 of the most influential chapters in the collection of God-inspired writings that we know as the Bible. And I'm going to wrap up with my favorite chapter in all of the scriptures. It's a pastoral privilege. I try not to take too many, but I'm taking one today. Because this is, I mean, if you left me on a desert island with just one chapter of the Bible to read, this would be it. I would read it every day. Is it me or did it just get really bright on me? I feel angelic. God liked that line. God agrees. This is the best chapter in the Bible. I was talking to my son about it as we drove here this morning. I I think if you just read this chapter, it, it defines who God is. It defines who we are. It defines who Jesus is, why he came, what God wants, how he sees us. How, and how we could and how we should respond to him. I would bet that if each of us would just read this one chapter, it would take one minute, if we read it every morning before we went to school or went to work, it would reframe everything about our day and about everybody that we'd run into and about yourself. And so I'd encourage you to do that maybe for the next 30 days. Just read this one chapter. It's so important. Some of you just, you've just been given a bad image of God. I want to try my best to correct it this morning. And so uh, it's Luke chapter 15. It begins like this. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, if you remember, Luke, right? Luke is not a, a follower of Jesus. Luke is a first century physician. He wasn't a disciple of Jesus. He, he likely never met Jesus. Luke is a first century, highly educated man of probably some position that set out to write an orderly account of the things of Jesus. And so he begins by describing the crowd. It was a crowd of tax collectors and sinners, which is interesting, not just sinners, but tax collectors and sinners. It's one thing to be a sinner, it's a whole other thing to be a tax collector. Can I get an amen? Because in the first set, if there's any IRS employees here, I apologize before we go any further. God loves you too. Um, that's not funny, <laughs> he does. Uh, I mean, a first century, maybe like today, it's one thing to be a sinner, it's a whole other thing to be a tax collector. Because in, in Jesus' day, these were actually traitors to their people. They worked with Rome to oppress Israel. This would be like Jesus saying today, uh, or the religious of the day saying, you know, Jesus, I saw him, he's out there, he's meeting with divorce lawyers and sinners. Luke doesn't include tax collectors with the sinners because he doesn't want to offend the sinners. Side note, pretty interesting that Jesus chooses Matthew, a tax collector, to be his disciple and record one of the four Gospels about him. And so here's Jesus, and he's doing what he does. It gets him in a lot of trouble. In fact, it gets a guy crucified. He's hanging around with the wrong crowd. 
He's not hanging out with people like, well, I mean, I hate to say it, people like us. Religious people, uh, pious people. But he's spending a lot of time with the wrong people, the, the bad people, the irreligious people. In fact, not just the irreligious people. Jesus actually spent a lot of time with the hyper-irreligious people. People who were considered not just morally neutral, but morally bankrupt, morally unclean. They weren't invited to the temple. They couldn't participate in any of the, the, the religious gatherings. These are unworthy people. Now, church, hear me on this. Jesus spends a lot of time with people who do not share his story. They don't share his history, his values, his religion, or his beliefs. Those kind of people. Now, there was another kind of crowd there that day. The crowd that Luke refers to as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These were the religious people, the religious leaders, the professional good people who thought because of their outward righteousness, their ability to keep all the laws, that God just was enamored with them. And so, they mutter. Pardon me, just like saying mutter, by the way, so I throw it in a lot. Jesus hears the muttering, and I don't know what it is he heard muttered, but I think I could guess, because I think we might do it too. Do you, did you know who Jesus had dinner with last night? Do you, you know, I saw him out. I mean, it'd be one thing to see him at a, a bar, but you're not going to believe where I saw him. You know that woman I saw him talking to? Do you see that guy? He's got his arm around that guy. And so Jesus hears the muttering. And something in it evoked within him a pretty passionate response. He launches into three parables. A parable is the way Jesus taught often in story form. This is the only recorded time in Jesus' entire ministry where he fires off three stories. Every other time where he'd run across somebody and he wanted to teach them, he would teach a parable, and then sometimes he'd explain it, sometimes he wouldn't, and then he'd move on. But something in the muttering this time set him into a kind of like, I don't know, firing line of stories. So Jesus hears the muttering, and Luke writes this, Then, upon hearing the muttering, Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now Jesus knows his audience, and he understands, and he does this with parables often, that a lot of them know a lot about the shepherding business. There's probably a lot of men there that do this for a living. Now notice the numbers in the stories because there's three stories in a row and these numbers are interesting. Here there's, uh, there's uh, 100 sheep and one gets lost. And he goes after the one. Now the 99 are valuable. The 99 are still left. Like you would think if you were a shepherd and one wandered off, you might say to yourself, I really can't go after the one because i got to keep these 99. i got to report to the landowner about these 99. And if I bring the 99 back tomorrow, I would think he'd look at me and go, well, it's not great, but at least it's 99%. That's pretty good. And this story has been so confusing to people over the years. Why? I mean, if Jesus loves all of us, why would he leave the 99 and go after one? That's not good math. But I came to understand this story in a new way this week. Oh, man, it just came barreling back at me. We were talking about it in the car yesterday, my family and I. I don't know if, if you all heard this, the, the tragic story of country singer Granger Smith. 
lost his three-year-old son this week in a drowning incident in his pool. Unfortunately, those stories are way too common, and uh, some of you know that this hits home in our family a lot, and so it hurtled me right back to the story that I've told you before about my son Caleb. Joe and I, when we had first moved to our house in Long Valley, it had a pool in the backyard, and that was pretty much all it had in the backyard was a pool, and I didn't really want a pool. Um, in fact, that 20 years later, I still don't really want a pool. Um, but uh, it had one, and so we liked everything else about the house. It had all the other things we wanted, so uh, we decided, you know what, we'll make do with the pool, and we'll buy the house, and we did. And so I was worried about the pool. I had young children at the time, and uh, I did all the research on, on pools and how dangerous they are. Um, Gosh, guys, be careful with pools if you have young kids. And uh, so I looked into it, and drowning, it's often referred to as the silent death, because when children fall into a pool, um, they make no noise. Uh, there's, they, they usually don't even thrash around. It's just quiet. So I was very afraid of the pool, and I had ordered a fence to be constructed around the pool so that we wouldn't have to worry about the kids too much. But it was our first summer there, and it was April, and we were excited about the pool. And so we opened it before the fence came. And uh, it was only open a week or two, and uh, I had the solar cover on it. We were trying to warm it up. And I was out in the, in the cul-de-sac. That was one of the reasons we bought the house. It was on a cul-de-sac. So I was two or three houses up in the cul-de-sac. And uh, I was out there with John and Courtney, who were my older two. They were young, you know, maybe, I don't know, six and four at the time. And uh, Caleb was inside with Joan. Um, and all of a sudden, I heard this scream from my, my yard a few, few houses down. And I thought to myself, boy, that was a weird weird scream, kind of a, I knew it was Caleb's scream, but it just sounded kind of strange. I didn't think much of it. So I kept playing with the kids for another minute or two, and then all of a sudden, you ever just get that feeling, you're like, eh, I should probably go check on that. So I left the two to go check on the one, and uh, when I got in the house, I was looking around for Caleb, I couldn't find him, he wasn't anywhere, I went upstairs, see, uh, Caleb yelling for Caleb, yelling for Joan, well, I got into uh, the bedroom, and Joan was sick, and I didn't realize she had laid down. So I looked at her and I said, where's Caleb? And she goes, I thought you had Caleb. And you ever have that feeling where you just feel all of like everything in your chest just go, oh, no. And so I went back downstairs and I went out on our deck and I looked on the pool. And on the pool, the solar cover was floating and one of Caleb's toys. So I uh, jumped off the deck, ran back, pulled the pool cover off, and there was my son at the bottom of the pool. And... Uh, it's still, I mean, I don't, it's just the most miraculous story of all time. I tell him all the time, God has a special plan for you because, I mean, if he doesn't get a scream out, somehow he screams. He doesn't get a scream out. Anyway, I fish him out of the bottom of the pool and miracle, miracle of miracles, he starts just breathing. But I left John and Courtney to go after the one. Now imagine me calling Joan and saying, you know, hon, uh, I heard Caleb screaming, we have an open pool in the backyard, but I got John and Courtney out here, and you know, it'd be better to just keep these two, don't you think, than going after the one? I mean, see, if it had been my cell phone that I thought might have fallen in the pool, I would have stayed with the two. If it had been my 401k that I thought was going to be lost, I might have stayed with the two. <laughs> but it was my son. See, these are stories about the value of one. 
And Jesus says that when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. See, I, I've been to that party. I pulled that boy out of the deep end of that pool by his foot and he breathed. And I went in and I, Courtney said, I, I'll, we were talking yesterday, she, she was probably six years old. She goes, I remember that day. I remember everything about it. And, and we, we were sitting there with towels and and. We rejoiced. Well, I mean, after Joan and I got done yelling at each other for who was supposed to watch him, we, then we rejoiced about my son who had been lost but was found. My son who in very real ways was dead but was now alive. Jesus goes on. He says, suppose, likely to a crowd of women, by the way, it's like... He cares about everybody in this audience. He goes, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Now stick with me on the math. We've gone from 100 to 10. But it's still this story about one. But now these 10 things are even more precious. There's less of them. There's some debate over what these 10 coins were for this woman. Some people have said it was the woman's dowry. In in the first century, oftentimes, a woman would wear her dowry in the form of, of, of coins on her forehead on a string. It was almost like bait for the guys, you know? Like, if you choose me, you get this. Um, right? Don't shoot the messenger. Um, <laughs> others, uh, others have said it was likely the story of a widow who this was everything she had, right? But she lost one of the coins. It was something of great value. You see, when something of great value goes missing, you will go to great lengths to get it. The other night, Caroline, um, my daughter, was at Relay for Life over at Mendham High School. Uh, Westmar Central in Law Valley and Mendham High School get together and they do Relay for Life to raise money for the American Cancer Society. An incredible event. They raised $75,000 for cancer research, which is incredible if you see the kids that are involved in it. So great job out of them. Joan and I bought her 82-year-old mother, 85-year-old mother out there to uh, walk the track. The walk down to the track was enough for her, but that was still a survivor walk for her. And, uh, and so we went home. Now, Caroline was coming home much later that night, and she called me in the, from the car, and she said, Dad, I just want to let you know I'm on my way home, um, so you're not worried. But I left my wallet there. She has like a, is a Kate Spade, a Kate Spade wallet, or who? Michael, oh, Michael Kors. She had a Michael Kors wallet that was a gift. Uh, she goes, I left my wallet there, and it was my fault because I, so she tells me it was my fault because I had brought her her wallet. My mistake, um, because I was afraid she would get in trouble for not having her license with her. Anyway, she goes, I left it there. Do you, you, know, do you think it'll be okay? And I said, no, I think you should go back and get it. And she goes, no, my friends will get it. I'm too tired. I'll just come home. Okay, so she comes home, and so she starts texting her friends. Hey, could you pick my Michael Kors wallet up? Uh, I left it at the thing. Well, no texts are coming back. She doesn't, what we found out is there's a presentation going on. Little kids are at this presentation. So she starts calling her friends. Now none of her friends are calling back. And so now Caroline, suddenly, you see the Michael Kors wallet wasn't that big of a deal until the Michael Kors wallet was lost. Then it suddenly became a bit of a bigger deal. Now I'm still playing it fairly cool till I heard Joan say, isn't that the wallet you, I gave you your father's credit card to put it in? <laughs> well, suddenly this wallet took on new profound value to me. It wasn't just Caroline that was weeping and wailing over this. It was now me. And as 11 o'clock on a Friday and my wife starts going, we're going to have to drive back out there to Mendham, which is pretty far from our house, the school, to get that wallet. 
Why? It didn't matter before, but now when it was lost, all of a sudden I would go through a lot like driving to Menham High School to go get it. Jesus said when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, I was at this party the other night, too. What was lost was found. When Caroline's friends called and said, you don't need to drive out here, we found your wallet. What Jesus is trying to teach everybody in his audience is something we know, but we've never applied to ourselves or to other people. When you lose something of great value, it calls for an all-out search. And when you find it, when you find, it, when you find what you lost, it's worthy of an all-out party. And then he gives this one last story. He just fires these off right in a row. And the people have got to be wondering, what, what's going on? I mean, one minute you're just having a dinner over at Jimmy's house, and these religious guys showed up, and now you're telling these stories. And so Jesus continues, there was a man who had two sons. Okay, so now stick with me on the math, right? We've gone from 100 sheep to 10, uh, 10 things of money uh, to two sons. I have two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Now, I know most of you know this story, but I want you to enter it with me. So I'm going to enter it myself. You can put yourself in here with me, okay? So I have two sons. My younger son is Caleb. This is Caleb coming to me. That same Caleb I saved from the bottom of the pool, the little ingrate. You would think that he would just appreciate what I've done for him. And he comes to me after all I've done. And he says, Dad, uh, you know, I know I'm rightfully in line for your stuff, and you know it too. I'm 21 years old. I don't have all that much. And you know, Dad, you've got some nice stuff. Some cars, a house, that 401k you're always talking about. <laughs> now look, Dad, we all know that some of it's going to be mine one day. And so, Dad, well, like, you just cut to the chase. Let's play a little game and pretend you're dead. <laughs> I mean, let's just role play it out. And if you were, I mean, here's things. I mean, Dad, you. Well, maybe let's not pretend. Let's just, you know, let's go for it. I would like my stuff now because I, I could do more with it now. And so, what I'd like for you to do, I mean, you got some equity in this house. I'd like you to sell the house. Now, I know there's a capital gain to be realized and there's some tax implications, but I really think, I mean, let's think about it. The kids are mostly out of the house. I think you and mom will be fine in a one-bedroom garden apartment. <laughs> this is somewhat wasteful. And then, Dad, about that 401k you reference often, I know there's an early withdrawal penalty involved in that, and some of it would be lost. But listen, if I wait it out, you and mom are likely to spend all of that before I ever get my hands on it, so I'll take my share now. Now that I got all this stuff, I really, you know, been watching some stuff on Vegas, and that looks kind of fun, so uh, I would like one of the cars. Two seems a little grandiose for a pastor. I'll just grab the better one. But here's what I know about Caleb, at least I think. Maybe he could tell me later. Caleb would never ask me to do that. Because there's something Caleb wants much more than my stuff. 
Now, he's entitled to some pretty good stuff. But there is, I believe, only one thing in this world that Caleb would want more than my stuff. You know what it is? Me. The only thing my son wants more than his dad's stuff is his dad. But not the son in this story, because in one sense, this son seems to have left home a long time ago. His heart left his father's house a long, a long time ago. What's amazing is the father lets him go. He lets him make the choice. He, he doesn't demand that he stay and obey and earn his inheritance. In a sense, he says, you can have my stuff because I just want you. I don't really want my stuff. I want you. He doesn't demand love or respect. And ultimately, look, I've raised some kids. You can't demand love or respect. He doesn't punish the son. He doesn't threaten to disown the son or cut the son out of the will. Why? Because the relationship was too important to the father. And so, listen to me. This is a crazy story. I never thought about this today. The son actually got what he wanted from the father. The son got what he wanted from the father. And I mean, if you and I are honest, I couldn't help but think about this. The son actually gets what it is we want from our heavenly father. God, I'd like your stuff. I'm not so sure about you, but boy, God, I would love some health and some protection and some financial prosperity. And then, you know, if you could just give me that stuff, I'll be just fine. I'll just go my way. And God, like the father, does not disown us because the relationship is too important. Now see, the first century audience understood something we don't. In the first century, for a son to do this to a father was a total embarrassment to the family. I mean, you gotta picture, enter the story. The father has gotta go liquidate his stuff. He goes in and puts for sale signs out on the farm. The neighbors are coming up to him going, Hey, man, I see you're selling half the estate. What are you doing? Well, my son wished me dead, so I thought what I would do is liquidate half of the stuff and just give him the money now. In the first century, for a son to do this, actually under Levitical law, and actually one of the Ten Commandments, right? Children obey your parents. Under the Levitical law, a son that would demand something like this was worthy of stoning. But the father loves the son more than he even loves his own reputation. Jesus goes on, he says, some, and some of you all know all this story too well, because you've asked for God's stuff, and you've gotten it. And maybe you found yourself in a land or a place farther away from home than you'd hoped. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth and wild living. After, you hear this, Caleb? After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs, which would make him completely ceremonially unclean to, to the Jewish audience. He would no longer be welcomed back into the temple or for worship. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that, made, that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When I first became a a follower of Jesus, when I first crossed over the line of faith, somebody explained what Jesus had done for me. It was into more of a, um, I don't know, it was a very con kind of conservative group of folks that had, had reached me with the gospel, and I remember hanging out with them. And they used a term that I, I well, I didn't like. Um, they would talk about lost people. I remember one time I was at a picnic, and and some of the folks from this church that I had started going to were talking about 
lost people. I remember one woman was cutting up a watermelon, and she was talking about lost people. But she was talking about them with a bit of a sense of disgust or disdain about them. Uh, Like they were kind of chaff, uh, unimportant people, uh, not of much value. They were bad, and now that I was in the church crowd, I'm good. It was like, okay, now I'm on God's side, that's right, and they're not on God's side. And so we hang together, and we're for God and against them. And that sounded really good, uh, being on God's side, except for one thing. There were lost people that I really loved, like people in my family. And when she kept talking about them that way, it just, I can still just see it thinking, this isn't right. And so I know some of you are so tired of me talking about the 92,962 people that live within one town of our church that don't know Jesus in any personal way, but if you want to know why I can't stop talking about it, it's because there's a few of those 92,962 people that live within one town of our church that don't know Christ that I love. And maybe you do too. Maybe you were at church this morning for the first time in a long time. Maybe you're wondering if I don't know who introduced you to God or who told you about God. And so, so often it's like this concept of, am I acceptable to God? Is he disappointed in me? Where do I stand with him? If I, have I been good enough? Have I done enough? Have I given enough? Maybe you wonder, if you're honest for a minute, what he thinks about you. Because I think a lot of times in Christianity, we talk about this acceptance thing. We talk about, well, you know, you need to accept Jesus as your Savior, which is always a strange kind of way of... of of saying it. I I think you have to decide if you want to follow Christ with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and and love on him and trust in him. Uh, But this whole acceptance thing, sometimes I think then we put that on God, like God accepts me. Like, okay, he he did detest me, but now he accepts me. But these stories, listen to me now, these are not acceptance stories. There's much more going on in this story than, well, I accept you. You squeak by. Maybe. You know, we're talking about baptism. Maybe for some of you, I'm I'm calling you to make a decision for the first time. For others of you, maybe you've, you've walked away from the Father and you found yourself in a pretty distant land too. Maybe you're wondering, you know, can I go home? And Jesus continues, when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out and go back. And by the way, it's not like he comes to some spiritual revival. He just is looking out for his own well-being still. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Comes up with his plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back. I'm going to tell him I was wrong. I'm going to change the way I'm thinking, right? That's kind of a religious word there, meaning repent. And I'm going to go home to my father. But look, I know I'm never going to be a son again. I blew that. I gave that one up when I was sleeping with the hookers and wrestling with the pigs. But maybe I could still sneak in and be acceptable to him. Maybe I could kind of slide in under the lowest bar of acceptable, and I could just be a slave. What happens next was even more amazing to Jesus' audience than it is to us. Here's what the scriptures say. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. 
Have you ever wondered how the father saw him when he was still a long way off? No telescopes, no binoculars, no GPS tracking systems. I mean, if the father had abandoned him like I would have or cut him out of the will, if the father had just gone on with life and said, well, I've got this one good son left, maybe we could rebuild the family dynasty together, how would the father have seen him from a long way off? You see, his father saw him from a long way off because the father's eyes never left the road that his son walked away on. Day and night, day and night, the father scans the road, waiting and looking and hoping and praying and dreaming. Jesus says, while the while he was still alone, well, the father saw him and was what? I mean, what would you be? If you're the dad, you worked your whole life to accumulate what you had accumulated for the family. Maybe half of it was your father's stuff that he had handed down to you. And this kid went and took half of it and blew it all in a few weeks. And when you saw him coming down the road, what would you be? Angry? Maybe some pride rears up. I told you so. Disgusted. Embarrassed. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And what's astonishing about this, I know that uh, we don't catch it because we're not, we don't have first century customs, but this would have blown the mind of the first century audience. In, a, in, in the first century, a Middle Eastern man never, a Middle Eastern man never runs. It's undignified. If he were to run, he has to hitch up his tunic so that he wouldn't trip. And if he does this, he exposes his bare legs. And in that culture, it's humiliating and shameful for a man to show his bare legs. And so the father for the second time, doesn't care about shame. He picks up his tunic and he runs to his son. Now, why wouldn't he wait? The kid was on his way home. Why would he embarrass himself again? Here's why. Because in the first century, there was another custom. If a Jewish son lost his inheritance while out with the Gentiles and then tried to come back and return home, the community would perform a ceremony that was called a kazaza. And what they would do is when the son tried to get back into the community, in front of them would break a large pot and they would yell, you are now cut off from your people. Completely rejected. The father runs in order to get to the son before he enters the village. He runs and he shames himself in an effort to get to his son before the community can get to him so that his son doesn't experience the shame and the humiliation and the taunting and the rejection. The father realizes it. Does this sound anything like a cross on Calvary? See, the village, they would have followed the running father. They would have witnessed what took place at the edge of the village between the father and the son. And after this emotional reuniting, it would have been clear, there's not going to be any kazaza ceremony today, folks. The son had repented and returned to his father, and the father had taken on the full shame that it should have fallen on the son. And he was welcomed home. You know the story. The son, he, 
The father comes and the son tries to execute his plan. Okay, remember, I got here's what I'm going to do. The son said to him, Father, I, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But because, before he could even offer to be a slave, the father cuts him off. No, no, no. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead He's alive again. He was lost and he is found and they began to celebrate. See, everybody in this room needs to hear this message from two perspectives. Uh, the first is, is this. Uh, church, listen to me now. Have you ever lost something really important to you that was valuable and you're just, you're just losing your mind over it? You know, like if you're a woman, if, you, if, you, if you're a mom, have you ever lost like some, well, moms never lose anything, actually, so it's probably a bad example, but if you're a mom, right, and you've lost like, I don't know, your cell phone, I know this never happens in my house, it's always the other, but you lost your cell phone, and so you really want the cell phone, and you come downstairs, and your kids and your husband are watching the TV, and you walk downstairs, you're very upset, you just bought that phone, and you say to them, I've lost my phone, and I'm really upset, what do your husband and children immediately do? Nothing. <laughs> right? I understand. And Sometimes I wonder if that's what it's like for God with his church. You know what I've lost? And the church people just kind of go. For others of you this morning, you need to hear this because you need to know God's heart for you. You are not just acceptable to God. You need to understand how valuable the value you have to the Father. He leaves the 99 for you. He searches everywhere until he finds you. His eyes go back and forth over the road looking for you. And when, you, when he sees you, he runs to you. I was working on this message this week, and I came across, I don't know how I hadn't seen this before. Maybe I'm so old I forgot it, but... In the 1992 Olympics, this is such a picture of this story. Uh, have you heard of the 400-meter runner Derek Redmond? He, he was at the peak of his athletic uh, abilities, and, and he was taking the starting line position in the Barcelona semifinals in 1992 in the Olympics. And his dad, who had been with him, you know, I've got a kid that runs track, and I know how hard dads work with their kids. His father was there to watch his, his son's Olympic dreams come true. Here's how Redmond recounts what happened. He said, he goes, everything seemed fine during the run until it wasn't. Along the back straight, Redmond's hamstring snapped. He said, when I took my place on the starting blocks, I felt good. For once, I had no injuries. I had already had eight operations in four years. But this time, I'd won the first two rounds, and I hadn't even broken a sweat. I had the fastest time in the first round heats. I was confident, and when the gun went off, I was out to a great start. I got into my stride. I took the first turn, and I was feeling comfortable, and then I heard a popping sound. I kept on running for another two or three strides, and then I felt the pain. I thought I'd been shot, but then I recognized the agony. It was familiar. I'd pulled my hamstring before. The pain is excruciating. It's like somebody shoves a hot knife into the back of your knee and twists it. I grabbed at the back of my leg. I uttered a few expletives and I hit the deck. I couldn't believe this was happening. All of my dreams, after all the training I'd put in, I looked around to see if, if the rest of the field were still nearby. They, they had gotten about 100 meters ahead and I remember thinking if I got up quickly, maybe I could still catch them and qualify. 
But the pain was intense. He, he said, I hobbled about 50 more meters, but then I realized it was all over. Everything was over. I looked around and saw that everybody had crossed the finish line. But I don't like to give up on anything, not even an argument, and my wife will tell you that. She said, I decided I was going to finish that race if it was the last race I ever did. And so all these doctors and officials were coming onto the track trying to get me to stop, but I wasn't going to have any of it. I became aware suddenly of someone else on the track. I didn't realize it, but it was my dad, Jim. At first he said, Derek, it's, it's me. You don't need to do this. And I said, Dad, I, I just want to finish. Get me back into the semifinal. And he said, okay. We started this thing together, and now we're going to finish it together. He managed to get me to stop trying to run and just walk and kept repeating. You're a champion. You've got nothing to prove. Some of you have been given a misunderstanding of who God is, the Father, and what his heart is for lost people. Not people that are chaff, but people that are far from him. Some of you need to have a new understanding of what God the Father feels for you, how he relates to you. And sometimes words aren't enough for that. So here's Redmond's race.
And while he was still a far way off, the father saw him and ran to him, pushed the neighbors away. Maybe he said something like, you're a champion. You have nothing to prove. In every one of these stories, something of great value was lost. In every one of these stories, because something of great value was lost, it was worthy of an all-out and even embarrassing sometimes search. And in all of them, when what was lost was found, a huge party was thrown. That's what baptism is. It's June. It's decision month. You should think about getting baptized.